A good evening and a warm welcome to all witches, weirdos, goblins and ghouls you are listening to the London Horror Society podcast. This is the podcast where we chat to people working across the genre, whether they be established or emerging, in front of or behind the camera, from first assistant director to final girl. Without any further ado, grab yourself a glass of Chianti, sit back, relax, enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. Huge thank you to everybody who listened to our episode last week with Jed Shepard. This week, we chat with Michael Levy. Uh, We talk about Abnormal Attractions, his role as Will the Exterminator in Terrifier, co-producing and assistant directing Terrifier 2, as well as his film Abnormal Attractions that came out a couple of years ago, and his upcoming film Stream. Uh, This is a good one. as ever, I won't spoil it, but all relevant links are in the show notes below. Huge thank you to Michael for giving us his time and, uh, you know, sharing a bit of insight into um, how Terrifier 2 got made, um, especially with how things have been over the last couple of years. So really, really insightful chat, uh, really grateful for his time, and I hope you guys enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Michael Levy, are you a witch, widow, goblin, or ghoul? You know, it's a that's a tough one. Um, I seem to be going back and forth between a goblin or a ghoul. Uh, I think I'm going to go with ghoul, though. That's interesting. You're our first ghoul, I think. Really? Yeah. Uh, so why ghoul, if you don't mind me asking? I just feel like there's so much more you can do as a ghoul. Um, you know, you're kind of not limited to the physical world as a ghoul. Um, you know, transportation, things like that. I know witches have magic and, and, and things like that, but I feel like ghouls have the ability to transport, transpose, to scare, to morph, to change, and you can have a lot more fun being. Yeah, there's a lot more possibilities when you put it that way, I guess. Yeah. Um, cool. So I, it was, Fuzz on the Lens started around, I think, was it 2014 that you, that you started up? So uh, it was a little before that. I mean, we were calling ourselves Fuzz of the Lens probably, you know, non-professionally around 2010, maybe 2000, around there. Um, And it really it was really started as just kind of a joke. Uh, We were shooting a short film for uh, for school. And uh, one of our buddies who's not in the film industry, he was holding the camera. He was a camera operator and he was shooting one of the scenes and uh he starts saying, hey, we, we got to cut. There's a fuzz on this lens. So for like 20 minutes, we'd literally see this big mark like right on the lens. We're cleaning. We're blowing into the lens like a bunch of schmucks. We're, we're taking our shirt. We're The whole thing's being recorded, by the way. And, uh, you know, we find out it wasn't a fuzz on the lens. It was a smudge on the viewfinder on the reverse side. <laughs> but, you know, so for literally 20 minutes, a half hour, we're trying to get this little piece of fuzz off. And, you know, lo and behold, it's on the reverse side. And uh, we ended up kind of, it kind of ended up being an ongoing joke. And uh, I was like, make sure you check for that fuzz on the lens. Um, and then when it came time to do this, you know, a little more professionally, uh, I was like, you know, what are we going to call ourselves? And fuzz on the lens just kept coming back. 
Uh, and he says, you know, it's, it's got some sentimental meaning to us. It's got, you know, it, it has something that we all were a part of that's a part of Fuzz on the Lens. And we've kind of just rolled with it. And here we are. And, you know, it's great is people don't forget the name. So it's uh, it's definitely memorable. It's catchy. So it's stuck. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, that's a really nice story. That's super cool. It's funny because you wouldn't think like a production company would call themselves Fuzz on the Lens or something I, like that. Because Especially it's funny because, you know, we, we do a, mi- a fair mix of we really do anything. Um whether it's uh, horror movies, drama, comedies, but we're mostly known now for horror stuff. Uh, but we love doing comedy. So when you see Fuzz the Lens before a comedy film, it makes sense. And then you see Fuzz mm-hmm. the Lens before a horror movie or like some kind of drama, it's like, wait, what is this going to be? Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it, it worked out. It kind of grew on us all. Yeah, I mean, it's good to be diverse. Um, uh, sp- speaking of which, you also do documentaries. Could you talk to me a little bit about um, Pennywise, uh, the story of it, as well as the Robert Englund story? How did, yeah. how did those projects come about? Uh, so um, we got in touch with the, the guys who do that. A uh, lot of the team is out in um, England, uh, Cult Screenings and Dead Mouse Productions and John Camp- Campopiano, um, great group of guys. And he's actually based in Boston. So uh, another guy, Mike Perez, out in L.A. They, they, they've they been working together for a while doing different documentaries on RoboCop and you know other stuff. And when they announced that they were doing Pennywise, I'm a huge uh, Stephen King's it miniseries Pennywise fan. Uh, Tim Curry is someone that uh, I really idolized and why I got into the business. Same with Robert England. Um, so when they started putting that together, we kind of collaborated and and you know joined forces, and uh, we were able to produce that with them. The first one was um, Pennywise: The Story of It, and we shot a lot of interviews here on the East Coast um for them like tim reed and richard mauser and uh, richard thomas and it was like really cool to 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 do that and then obviously when it came time for robert england doc we had jumped on board with them again and uh you know got them a lot of uh different people that we knew in the business whether it was acting or on the producer side or stunt side that we got involved into those into those uh documentaries so i love you know documentaries especially ones that are you know stuff that i'm interested in like filmmaking or you know behind the scenes stories or acting and stuff so it was something different for us and again being a production company we kind of like to have our hand in you know doing many different projects to keep things interesting to keep things different to keep us on our feet so uh, definitely would do more too and those are a great group of guys i'm very proud of the way it, it all came out and came together can't wait for everybody to see the robert england story as well yeah no that's uh really really high on my list i'm really looking forward to seeing that I've got to work my way through uh, In Search of Darkness Part 3. Right, right. Before I can watch any other documentaries, though. Um, yeah, it's funny because I worked with Robert on a movie called Fear Clinic. Um, I was a producer on that, and I actually got to play young Robert England in that film. Um, right. And got to do some, yeah, I got to do some uh, work as him as as darkness or blackness, whatever the, the creature was called in that film, because we have similar bone structures, I guess. Uh, so that was really cool, and that was a, a, a really fun highlight of my career especially early on getting started that's pretty sweet um so t- tell me about uh, abnormal attraction can you uh, just give me a bit of a rundown how how did the idea for this uh, film come around and and you know you got such an incredible cast for it as well what was that process like it's a f- very bizarre movie for anybody who have seen it or look into it um it's something that we really says you know there's nothing out there that's like this we wanted to do something different we wanted to do something as kind of a fun not in a wink to the horror community, but in a comedy way. Uh, everybody has heard of, you know, the different types of monsters, the monster under the bed, the boogeyman, the tooth fairy, the sand, whatever. 
Uh, and we decided to say, okay, how do we take these well-known creatures and fairy tale characters and what have you and kind of flip them on their head? So we recognize them, but we might not recognize them. So it kind of started with that. Um, again, we wanted to make a fun, doesn't take itself too seriously, campy 80s, 90s style comedy. Uh, originally, it was actually a short film. And uh, it all was a base around this AA meeting where uh, you think the our main character thinks that he's uh, being a counselor for Alcoholics Anonymous. And really, he's a counselor for abnormal attraction, people who have an abnormal attraction towards these um, creatures. And so it kind of just sparked from there. And then it was like, okay, there's a lot of social commentary under there. It's like the monsters are being persecuted. And it kind of goes, it's weird for a funny, silly movie. It's got a lot of, um, surprisingly, a lot of, of that social commentary of what's going on in society today. Um, but we had a blast making it. And it was kind of just what crazy, obscure, silly things can we do to make each other laugh and you know, make the audience uncomfortable, but also kind of say, oh, that was interesting. Um, if you get past, once you get past the first half hour, there's a character that everyone talks about that kind of steals the show called Finbar. Um, and it really takes on, he really takes on, you know, a, a life of his own as the, the story kind of progresses. Um, but getting the talented people we got involved, there was Tyler Maine and Gilbert Gottfried of Bruce Davis and Malcolm McDowell, Leslie Easterbrook from Police Academy, um, I mean, just really awesome people to work with. And this is my first time directing, you know, name, you know, talent and that many of them. And they all were attracted to the script for one real reason, that it was different um, and that it took risks and, you know, it was unique. And a lot of times now, as we know with Hollywood and, and the kind of that structure, it's kind of the same thing tried and true again because it's successful and that's great and it's fine, but there's nothing new or fresh. So we wanted to really turn it on its head and just make a fun movie that we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. yeah no really really interesting i think it's great it's like i think we need more of that kind of stuff and i think it's definitely a testament to the script that you know people like malcolm mcdowell and stuff those those big hitters who have been in the business for a really really long time if you imagine how many scripts must have come across their desks do you know right. what i mean and i think the key thing that you said there is different do you know what i mean yeah. so must be interesting like you know speaking of hollywood you're, you're based on the east coast is that correct yes yeah. new york yep yeah um, so, I mean, with the success of like your films, particularly like Terrifier 2 over the last year or so, is there kind of a, a Hollywood like trying to drag you from the East Coast? Like, or are you kind of staying, staying put? Like, do you need to be in Hollywood these days? I mean, obviously not. Like, what, no, what I like going out to Hollywood and visiting in LA. And if there's work out there to be done for a certain amount of time, sure. Whether it's six months, three months, a year, whatever it is, I'll go if the work calls for it. Uh, but living out there, the great thing about, look how we're communicating, right? It's you can have meetings at a, at a drop of a hat quickly, just as easily, and it's in person. And uh, so you don't really need to be out there. It's so accessible now being anywhere in the world. And I think that's clear even where with what's happening in the business in general there. They're opening up hubs in, in Tennessee. They're opening up, they've had hubs in Georgia, um, you know, all the tax incentive stuff. So you really don't need to be out in L.A., um, Clearly, we've been doing it here on the East Coast, and and we've been okay, you know, in doing it. But again, if it if it kind of calls, uh, I'd go out there for that reason. But to live, it's not really, you know, I have too many connections here and family and things like that that uh, you know I, I feel comfortable in in making a successful film where I am. Yeah, no, fantastic. I think there's that kind of like we've got a similar kind of thing in the UK where it's like got to be in London, got to be in London, got to be in right. London. And, um, you know, I kind of fell into that trap a little bit 
um but you really don't i, d- I don't think particularly these days like you know we've we've got members in lhs that are from you know york manchester all up and down the uk who are kind of just making really good stuff without being in one of those like right clubs. do you know what i mean like you used to you used to have to do it obviously because, mm. because it was just so hard to nothing was accessible there wasn't a way to have a, a meeting like this or yeah. you know interview so it was just easier to get things done especially in a business that's very like this so you had to yeah. be there to be even thought of um but again nowadays it's just so different that uh, you d- you don't have to be and that's great and like i said we built a really good team here of people um that i've worked with on many projects so you know just having that is is just such a huge advantage and why i really wouldn't want to break that up as well yeah no that makes complete sense i mean speaking of teams and stuff like that like how is it that you ended up getting involved with the uh the original terrifier film was it because you had done the staten island clown it was like a viral kind of thing yep. like could you is that is that how is that art the clown or was it no is that it's funny it it has nothing really to do with art the clown at all it's which is mm-hmm. funny uh it was just this viral kind of marketing campaign that we did we put this clown out there and says you know we're going to change the narrative of the news there's always so much you know, craziness, sadness, violent stuff going on. And we says, let's make it like a movie. Let's see if we could put something out there, mm-hmm. have fun with it. Uh, maybe in a couple of months, we're like, you know, we'll be the first ones to get them on camera and things like that and, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of do it that way. And the funny thing is it was within three days of putting this clown out in the world that it just exploded. And it kind of took on a life of its own. Um, and because of that, we ended up getting, you know, well-known and production company. And that's how we got a lot of the funds for Normal Attraction to shoot that film. Mm-hmm. On the set of Abnormal Attraction, uh, one of our producers and um, sound engineers, he brought on this other producer, Phil Falcone. He mm-hmm. says, I want to meet you, this guy. He's a producer. He's an investor. At the time, that's what I was introduced to him as. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said he's working on his movie called Joe's War, which mm-hmm. was with Amanda Sante, Ed Asner, and, um, and uh, Tom Sizemore. And uh, he says, you know, uh, you might if he comes down the set. So I says, no, of course. So in the end of Abnormal Attraction, we built this giant monster village. And there's all like little huts and houses and things like that. Like you really feel like you're in the fairy tale fantasy world. And so he was really impressed with, you know, our set design and, and what we've done with no money. Um, and, you know, he says, hey, would you like to work on my film and help me out with Joe's War? So he said, sure. So we came in helped him out with with the finishing up of his movie and it was actually phil's son who was pitching to me phil's next film that he was doing he says oh have you heard of art the clown and i says no he says are you horror fan i says i actually am a big horror fan but i haven't heard he goes all hallows eve and he's going into that he says no i'm surprised so i went home i looked at it and um they were pretty much crewed up at that point but uh you know, became really close with Phil, and obviously he's the executive producer of Terrifier, and um, he introduced us to Damien, and uh, we kind of just hit it off and just kept staying in touch. And then the opportunity first came up um, for roles that they were adding into the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, at first they said, you know, we're doing these two cops at the end of the film, and he says, would you like to audition for one of them? So I actually auditioned for the cop first. Mm-hmm. And uh, myself and and... Uh, my business partner, Steve Delasalle, had interviewed, uh, a, a, uh, auditioned for the cops, and uh, we both got the role. But then a little bit later, Damien says, well, I got another role, and uh, he goes, it's going to be really cool. I'd love to offer it to you. The only difference is you're not going to live. He goes, but it's a really memorable moment. You're going to get decapitated. And uh, he goes, would you do it? I said, well, if you're, in, if you're in a horror movie and you don't die, you're really a part of a horror movie. Right. So I said, sure. 
I said, great, I'd love to be decapitated. Um, so that ended up happening. And then through that process, we got to know each other more. And then we came on as a more uh, production side of things as well, you know, and, and helping getting Terrifier, the original, to the finish line. And then over the years from that point, because that was like 2015, 2016, uh, we just got really close with Damien and Phil and George Stuber and that and that whole team. And, you know, we became like family. And then it came time to do Terrifier 2. Um, and that's where we were brought on in a much, much, much bigger capacity of mm -hmm. being producers and uh, assistant director and, you know, couldn't be in the film. Sadly, I was decapitated. So that, that wouldn't be because you won't be in the sequel. Um, which I guess isn't true because I actually I have a voiceover role in the sequel. So I gotta tell is that you on the radio? I'm, I'm in the club actually. I'm the club announcer, yeah. In the in right. the club. If you listen, you hear, you know, Happy Halloween and uh mm. Q X T Q T X is the club and so you hear like these little drips and drabs and that was my voice, yeah. Mm. So you, you made you made it in. Will the Exterminator lives. He's fine. Right. Um, exactly. Get, just jumping back to Will the Exterminator real quick. I mean, one that's a, a really, really good kill and a really good death. Um, I have been curious uh, since we kind of booked the interview. Um, ha have you got your own decapitated head? Like, is that something that you get to keep? Or Funny story about it. I had a second production version of the head right here. So this, wow. is, what, this is without the beard. Uh, without some of the, the makeup on. It's just got the hair, the eyebrows or anything. So that was the second copy. And the only reason why I ended up getting the second copy of it was because the first copy was promised to one of our producers that actually gave the money to do that scene. You know, Fair he enough. gave extra money. And, and the person's in Australia, I think. So he's got my head from screen use from the film in like a case on his mantle and fireplace or something. And I told him, I says, if you ever get rid of it, give me a call first mm. before you decide to sell it off to somebody. But I do have the second one in case that one did fail. And um, we're going to do it up. Damien just needs some time. Everything's kind of went haywire since the release of two. But yeah, when yeah. we get time, I'm going to definitely, you know, put the hair in and make it exactly Excellent. what it looked in the film. Yeah. yeah. That must have been tricky to get that through customs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because we just came from a convention <clears throat> in um, Georgia. One of the people got one of the other heads um the uh, the guy, the costume shop guy, they have his head. They got it from Indiegogo before we shot the movie. So they brought the head to, they're from uh, Arizona. They brought it to Georgia to get it signed by the actor who played the costume shop owner. Right. And I, I said to them, they had to wrap up. I says, how the heck did you get this through airport security? And they, <laughs> I looked at you like, this is insane. <laughs> I got stopped for having business cards in my, in my, uh, in my luggage. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Um, I I do really like that scene in the. Uh, what wasn't there a thing on Instagram where, I think, either yourself or Damien or Phil, someone went into a Halloween shop and there was like a thing hanging, that was like exactly like was like yeah uh, yeah yeah it was the, well it was um <clears throat> the first film the first film that was hung upside down and split down the middle. Mm. When we walked in, we were shooting. I've known this costume shop for a while. It's been in. It's in Manhattan, and uh, <clears throat> so when we were looking for a costume shop, we told Damien. We says, you know, we got the perfect place. They've they've always helped us out in the past with other projects. Uh, I think they'd be willing to let us shoot there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we took Damien in. Damien saw it. Damien loved it. Still never saw that thing. And then we're on set shooting, and David is standing in full art makeup under it. And I'm not 
you know, just I'm looking around, we're waiting to go on. I'm, you know, talking with David about the next scene and, you know, other things. And then I just kind of looked up and I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I'm like, if this isn't a sign of things to come, yeah, uh, you know, if this isn't meant to be, it was very serendipitous. There it was hanging upside down from like from the first film. Um, so we did that little Instagram thing where he like looks up and comes down, uh, but totally unplanned. And, and it was just really cool that it was like meant to be. Yeah, that's amazing. That's like, I think that's a good omen. Do you know what I mean? I, Actually. I, mean, I think sometimes you need something like that when you're on set. Do you know what I mean? Just yeah. a, any kind of little uh, little omen or nod that you're doing the right thing and it's going in the right, right direction. It's funny because for anybody else, they would say that's a bad omen. If you walked in and you saw a hanging split girl upside down, but for, ter- <laughs> for terrifying, that's, that's a great omen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very on brand. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what, what was your, um, you know, it, it must have been a lot of work kind of being the co-producer as well as the AD. Like, I know that that's kind of not abnormal, particularly in um, independent horror films. Like, a lot of people have to wear a lot of hats, and that's kind of just how it goes. But with uh, a film like Terrifier 2, the scale is a lot bigger than what it was for Terrifier. You've got a lot more plot, a lot more characters, um, a lot more locations, um, just a lot more of everything to wrangle. Like, what? How, how do you deal with that, is my question, really. Yeah, it's it's... Not easy, especially when you have a crew of literally nine people made this film. And wow. that's no exaggeration when, you know, we talk about it. Everyone, like you said, is wearing multiple hats. Damien's directing and he's doing all the special effects. And it's, it's just him and Phil, really, that's it. Um, doing that, uh, producing, co-producing, AD. It's, it all, to me, it all kind of falls under an umbrella when you're doing an independent film. It's just like whatever I can do. I'm gripping, too, putting up lights. It's just mm-hmm. however... However, and whichever way you can get the movie done and in the least amount of time, which most of the time was like 15 hours, uh, we're going to get it done. Um, But it is, and it was a bigger scale, and it's a lot more people you're dealing with. And, you know, luckily I had a background with Abnormal Attraction and uh, another film I did, Penance Lane, a few others, where there were multiple uh, actors and extras and things like that that I had kind of become very comfortable in wrangling and dealing with so many different personalities. For Damien, this was the first time he had had a movie of this scale, mm. um, you know, and we were able to guide him in how to do that. Like the club scene, you know, I really took over um, all of the extras and because I just to alleviate any little bit that I can from Damien because he's wor- he's worried about, you know, obviously Sienna and Brooke and their little story and their arch and like he's super focused on performance and like all of that stuff. So it's it's hard to, you know... Is, when are we going to get to the club? Is the club going to let us in on time? When do we have to wrap out of the club? All of the lights, all the extras, when are they coming? Get their releases. Um, deal with SAG. And it's, you know, so luckily, you know, between the three of us from Fuzz and the Lens, we were all able to kind of delegate, get the permits for the cop cars. And then it was, you know, now we're on set. We have to move. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was, you know, fortunately, the three of us have done that before we've worked together. So we were able to navigate that and help Damien out to where he was just able to really just focus on, his shot list, his uh, effects, obviously, and then just directing and, and making sure that his story was able to be told in the way that he wanted it to. I guess it's one of those things, like, it's, it's kind of like more money, more problems, you know what I mean? Like, if you, like when the scale goes up, the scale of all the issues go up as well. And, and there was pressure, too, of, of now we have a fan base that we don't want to let down, sure. right? So it's like, you know, there's the pressure of that, too. And Damien, we all do, Damien really cares about the fan base that he established and this movie terrified Two, was made as a love letter to our fans mm. um it's great what happened where it went a little bit more you know 
general and you know uh, a little more pop culture-y. But we made this movie for the fans. The only reason why it exploded the way it did was because our fans of the original film really drove, mm-hmm. you know, to the theaters and really pushed this thing to to go. It's very organic, and word of mouth is the most powerful marketing tool you can get. And it was because of them is why it went more mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think, it, um, I don't know if it had a UK release or not a massive one anyway. It played at Fright Fest, I know that. Right. Um, but in the States, I think it had like, didn't have like a fairly limited run. And then it just yep. kind of get, kept getting extended and extended yep. and extended. It was, suppo- it was supposed to be one day at first, just a one day across the country in a few theaters. And then it got extended to a three-day weekend. And we figured, all right, it'll play for three days and a weekend and a Friday Saturday, Sunday, or Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever. Um, and it was in a few theaters. Then all of a sudden, we got more theaters because the tickets were selling out. Mm. Then it just kept getting extended week by week by week. And we had like a full theatrical run. We had like a six-week run. You know, it started, um, I think, the end of September, like right before, like early October, somewhere in there. And it went all the way past or like right up to Thanksgiving, like in that frame. So it had a full, you know, theatrical run, and it was really the fans drove that and made that happen. We were never supposed to get that. And there were people in the theaters. It was still selling out. It was still packed, you know, and people were just talking about it. And that's just, again, make a good film. You make a film that you believe in. You put everything into it. Good story, fun, creative kills. But then, you know, you, you they'll see how genuine we were about it. And it, then you mix that with perfect time of year. It's like the perfect storm. And it just kind of explodes. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's bang on. Like, if you if you guys had spent like months trying to make a film that would do exactly what Terrifier right. did, it wouldn't have worked. Right. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, uh, see, people had planned for something like that. It was funny when people would say to us, "This was family, friends. Is am I going to be able to see this in theaters?" And your always response is, "Well, you know, probably not theaters. It might have a limited one day run if we're lucky, but uh, this is going to live on streaming." And this is where everybody is going to see this film um, because you don't want to get people's hopes up. And realistically, that's just what it is. This day and age, Spielberg has a hard time getting his movies into theaters, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes. So it's like, yeah, you got to kind of, uh, you know, curb the expectation and just be realistic about it. But we never expected this at all, you know, and, and I'm hoping and it seems to be at least the case for now is that we've opened up a lot of opportunity for other independent filmmakers for other indie films to kind of have this uh opportunity and this avenue for potential success in the theaters because look what happened give them a shot you know let's go back to like the 80s and the 70s where you know these kind of uh, independent lower budget films you know had a chance to be successful and because of you know theatrical runs and things like that so hopefully it seems to be happening you know they had the grinch that david howard thornton was a part of and Mm -hmm. You know, these other films seem to be getting these limited uh, event kind of theatrical releases and we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I think last year was such a varied year in terms of, you know, not necessarily in terms of popularity because there were a bunch of films that came out that were super popular. But if you look at the kind of differences between um, Terrifier 2, um, uh, Barbarian in terms of its kind of scale and route, as well as Smile, like a studio, low budget, but studio movie. Do you know what I mean? Right. All kind of having huge amounts of, of success and now with Skinner Inc as well, which is out in the UK today. Exactly. Um, you know, and that's another one that would have probably never gotten into theaters and now it is. And, and so, yeah. And it's, and it's insane. It's crazy. 
And this is what Chris and I were talking about, um, you know, when we recorded our kind of very first episodes, just us together. The landscape is like completely different now. Um, well, we hope we hope it is anyway. But but, you know, I think I think it must be just because of films like Terrifier 2 over the last year. And one thing that I kind of had a theory about or wondered was, I don't know if this is necessarily a question or me just thinking out loud, but with the way that the world has kind of been, uh, you know, locked down over the last couple of years, I would imagine that a lot of the productions that we've kind of had come out in 2022, and we've had this big wave of um, kind of, you know, new horror films, you know, potentially would have not, had the pandemic not happened, might have come out in 2020, 21, and then 22. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, it could have been that Barbarian came out a couple of years ago and Smile came out in 21 right. and then Terrifying so came out. Explosion. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I think that's part of it too. And and the pandemic definitely changed things as well. I mean, we I'll tell you right now, we got very lucky in a lot of ways with the pandemic for our next film, which is Stream, that we're we're going to be coming out with uh, the same crew from Terrifier. A lot of the you know similar cast members as well has transferred over. Um, and because of the pandemic, it made certain things harder, but it made certain things a lot easier to accomplish um, just because of, you know, kind of what happened. Um, so, yeah, I definitely believe that this kind of explosion of horror and how many big horror stuff had come out, you know, whereas, you know, it's a huge year for horror. I think that is because they were all kind of just pushed into, okay, we have to wait, we have to wait and see where it goes. Same with Halloween mm. and Kills and then Ends. It wasn't supposed to be. It was yeah. delayed, delayed a year each. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for sure. Does that like put more like fire in your gut kind of thing? Like, does that make you just want to keep like getting out there to have that kind of, yeah. like, like vindicated in a way? Like, um... Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it just shows that it's, uh, I don't think horror is ever going to die. I don't because no. it's kind of the tale that's old this time. Uh, it's, you started off, around the campfire telling scary stories right before there were films and uh before there were recordings of movies and books even um and then you had the books like the, the fairy tale grim and those were horror stories to teach kids to stay in line and moral lessons if you you know if you go in the wood the witch is gonna get you she's gonna throw you in the oven you know don't talk to strangers mm-hmm. um so horror has been around forever and it just it kind of evolves from slasher to paranormal and this kind of monster and encyclical it kind of keeps you know whatever changing and coming back um but you do you do feel vindicated because everything that you believe in and everything that you put so much effort into when the audience resonates to it and they're clamoring for it it just shows you know hey my work and what i believe in means something and it's not all just for you know nothing obviously you know if if i didn't have to make money to survive i would be doing this anyway i love it it's just what I want to do, but sadly you need money to live and you, you know, you, especially if you have a family and just to eat. So, you know, the more money that comes with that too is great because now you're able to continue working and continue doing what you love. Any kind of creative business is tough. Yeah. Um, how to break into, but you know, you stay with it. I always use the analogy where it's like you're chopping down a tree and it's a big tree. It's a monster tree. You got this little ax, but you just keep going. It could take you years to get there, but that tree will come down. I promise if you just keep hacking away at it. I think a lot of people feel like there's a kind of, I, I certainly had like a bit of a mental barrier, like this is kind of out of reach and I, you know, I can't access this and stuff like that. But I think, you know, people are kind of seeing that it is more accessible at the moment, um, which is good, particularly because of films like Terrifier, Terrifier 2 and, uh, you know, the films that we were talking about from last year. Um, 
j- jumping back to Terrifier 2 uh, real quick, could you kind of talk me through um, the production schedule? Like, was it quite contracted or did you have a little bit longer than uh, than the first uh, first film? Or Yeah, there was like, I feel like at this point, there was like over 100 days that we had shot <laughs> Terrifier. Wow. It was like a crazy schedule. I mean, there's like stuff in the footage that says day 66. I mean, it's like insane. Um, wasn't supposed to be like that. There was like maybe a 35-day schedule that now we realize was really ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, it was never going to happen. So there was like that little preliminary kind of schedule that we had. Um, and then it kind of just exploded from there. Uh, reason being, again, nine people who made the film, right? Then there's uh, Damien's doing all the special effects. It kind of gets dragged off. So we were like shooting two weeks and then off two weeks and then yeah. shooting a week and then off another two weeks. So it was very untraditional in the way that we had done it. Um, it was a grueling schedule. Like the hours were, again, nine people. There's no way we would have been able to accomplish um, what we were able to accomplish without having a bigger team in place. And we just didn't have it. So we were working 12, 13, 14, 15 hour days with a turnaround of like six hours, eight hours, like very much so what you should not do. But we had a bunch of people who believed in the project so much so and really loved each other like a family and wanted to be there. It was just like hanging out with your friends. Um, but not to say that it, you know, wasn't getting a lot of work done. So it was kind of that mix of both, but it was uh, a very interesting schedule. And then COVID comes in the middle of it, shuts us down. You know, we were shooting the clown cafe scene, right? As COVID was hitting, we were up in upstate New York in this town called Canada Joe Harry on the set that we had built. And, um, COVID starts hitting, but we're so off the grid. We don't even really know what's happening. Right. And we're getting drips and drabs. The service isn't really that great up there. And we have a whole group of people, like 20 people that were just flown in from all over the freaking country. Mm. Some people from out of the country um, and traveling. And we're like, oh, my God, did we just bring this to here? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, then we find out Tom Hanks has it. Everything gets shut down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we're like, when do we get to restart? When do we get to, you know, continue? And then. It helped us in a way because Damien went back to the drawing board and was able to really amp up the bedroom scene. Mm-hmm. So we had shot most of that scene already. And then Damien's like, you know what? Let's just make this bigger and crazier. It's not really what I was hoping for it to be. So him and Phil went back to the drawing board and we were able a few months later to go back and, and revamp it. Yeah. I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up that scene. If I were to say that scene, do you know the scene that I'm talking about? Because that's how it's referred to as, uh, uh, that's how people refer to it on Twitter and, uh, and uh, on the LHS Discord and stuff like that. So um, h- how do you go about kind of, um, you know, say you're about to shoot that that scene in particular. How do you go about kind of planning your day as an AD with, you know, those effects? Like, do you kind of have to consider resets and, you know, how everything's falling? So I'm assuming like with only nine people on set, you know, you don't maybe don't have the luxury of like a script supervisor, continuity supervisor and things like that. I imagine does that fall on your shoulders as well as gripping AD yeah, and co-producing? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. I was the script supervisor uh, and trying to make sure that I can keep track of continuity. I mean, everybody was trying to do it too, just to make it easier. Um, you always have to prepare for more time with the gore stuff mm-hmm. because it takes way longer than anybody wants it to. Um, you kind of fly through the talking head dialogue stuff with the gore. It's reset. Clean up is the worst. You know, clean up the blood, get the blood, especially, oh, you only got one shot at this because it's going to stain everything. And, you know, you got to make sure you have multiple cameras on it if you can, which most of the time you don't have. Um, For those, you try to get at least two. Um, And it's just 
go and kind of then it, the process with that is what you have to account for is so then she goes and she shoots, but now she's got to have her eye ripped. She's got to go into makeup for another two hours to get that prosthetic. She comes in for two seconds. Now she's got to get her arm ripped. She's got to go back in the makeup for 40 minutes and then come out. And guess what? You can't really worry about the shot list because the director is the one doing the makeup. Right. So it really just makes you know, a scene like that. You're shooting over a week over three days or four days or wow. so it really just extends the process because of how limited you are with people um and there's only so much time you could shoot 24 hours straight and you're still not going to get it and people are going to be burnt out and that's the thing you can't do too you don't want to burn anybody out you want to make sure that you're following the rules too and and everybody's safe um gets the proper rest so it's a lot of that balancing act um but it's it those blood scenes are really they look great on camera <laughs> But they are the worst to shoot, and blood gets on everything. Once it's on the floor, you track it through. You got to clean it. It's on the equipment. It's on the apple box. It's on your hand. You touch the camera. It's like, oh, my God. So you make sure the DP doesn't touch anything because it's going to end up on the camera, and then you're screwed. Um, but I would know. If you say that scene or the bedroom scene, yeah, you know you know what it is. And the same with Terrifier 1. If you say that scene, I know everyone's talking about the saw scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's just, again, it's the scene that's the most talked about. And that was the scene that we had decided that we're going to try to rival the hacksaw scene from the first one. Mm -hmm. That's where we threw all the eggs in the basket, really made it grueling and long and drawn out and crazy. Um, it's funny. I love that kill. But my favorite kill is still the Brooke kill when she gets the acid in the face and you see her bubbling and we take the, you know, we take the, uh, the hack at her chest and rip it open. I actually did all the, the effects on that. I'm the one swinging the, no, no the, way. Yeah, yeah. David wears contacts and he doesn't uh, wears glasses, but he can't. He doesn't wear contacts in the mask, so he was afraid to miss and swing and stuff with the sharp thing. So we get it was getting late, and David's swinging, and Damien's going. It's not hard enough, and you're not hitting your mark. So David looks to me and he goes, "Why don't you do it?" I says, "All right, I'll do it." I says, "Damien, because now I'm the AD too, right?" I says, "I'm going to destroy this freaking thing, and there will be nobody left. So we're going to have to call it a wrap and go home." And I destroyed. Totally shredded and ripped that freaking rip cage apart. Damien goes, well, I guess we're done. <laughs> yeah. Put on the Art the Clown costume. <laughs> did, it, did it feel weird putting on the Art the Clown costume? Did it feel kind of some kind of cosmic interference with your life? Or... It, uh, it, was, it, it didn't. Uh, I mean, obviously, you feel you feel something. Like you took, mm. you put that, you're like, oh, I, I got the, you know, the stars uh wardrobe on and it's like okay and then you you tell damien damien if you want to just take a peek look up quick just see my face for a second let's see how that how that goes uh but it's like anything else you know it becomes you know again it's great we love it it's fun but you know it's still a job at the end of the day as well and it's, you know you got to get it done so it's mm -hmm. kind of like when you're just in that mode you don't have a time to kind of sit back and like just reminisce about it all yeah no i know what you mean like speaking of um kind of trying to match uh scenes in the second one to the first one not match necessarily but kind of like you know one up them and stuff like that were there kind of conversations about that for the entire film itself if that makes sense because i i just remember watching the first time i watched terrifier 2 uh you know that bit the second time we see our not in the alleyway but in the coroner's office where he's kind of just bearing down on the coroner there's something about his face that just makes you go fuck this is different right like it's, it's more, he's more evil yeah yeah right. yeah that i don't know what it is i don't know if it's the missing eye or, or or what but there's just something about it that's just a bit more like whoa do you know what i mean yeah you know it was it was 
overall, it was going bigger for sure. It was making sure that we have a bigger story, um, more interesting, fleshed out characters. We have someone to rival art that is just as worthy of screen time and that audiences could connect to. That's where Sienna came in. Um, and then it was, you know, it was always we need to have any scene to rival the hacksaw scene. That was always the, you know, the one scene we kind of focused on most with in regards to that. But yes, there was a general bigger overall grander and it was the same with the costume shop that was kind of our similar pizzeria scene where the girls first meet art and he gives the ring in the first one and there's that piece there and then this one was he putting on the glasses and um you know she's at the cash register and he comes up to her but it was always you know kind of take that same blueprint so to speak that kind of worked for the first one and then just crank it up to a thousand you know yeah man when he puts on the glasses that's just it's looking back it's funny or if you see a still of it it's funny but in the context right. of what comes before and after it's fucking horrifying do you know what i mean yeah um, it's eerie oh hell yeah but it's people have had that tattooed on them like that is that i know it's bizarre yeah we never thought that i'll tell you when i first saw <clears throat> when we were there shooting he was just trying on different glasses and uh i actually connected most with the hands one I thought that one was really, really fun. The pan's and, uh, labyrinth looking. Right, kind of the pan's labyrinth. I'm like, oh, that's freaking cool. So the sun, the the sunflower ones. It was, it was just yeah, there, whatever. I never, none of us ever expected that to be the thing that everybody just latched onto. Mm. So it just goes to show you, you know, we thought it was funny. He was like, okay, yeah, but never thought it would be. They have toys with the fake little glasses. Now they have yeah. shirts. They have tattoos with the glasses. It's like, how did this? you know, become this sensation. The same with the little kid from the serial. Um, Wesley Holloway is the actor. He actually is, is one of the stars in our next film, Stream. Uh, talented young man, but you never knew that serial kid was going to be something that, an image that is so now synonymous with Terrifier 2. You see a few images, right, that everyone shares, and that's one of them. So it's like, you just don't know. You know, you you, you put everything out, but you don't know what's going to stick all the time. Yeah. It's interesting. Just, you know, even with all the planning and stuff like that, and it's like, you know, I guess that's the kind of, like, rule of the day for, like, Terrifier 2 in and of itself, that, like, you just, you just, I don't know. It's just going to, you know, it's yeah. just going to do what it wants to do. Do you know what you I mean? Do your best. It's like we always, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this kind of expression. It's it's basically making a movie is like, you know, having a kid. It's you you conceive the child, which is you thinking about the ideas, right? Then you birth the child and it's like, okay, now, um, you know, you, you have your script ready, you're shooting the movie. And then as you're making the movie and then you're going through post-production and, you know, editing and everything, it's you grooming the child to get ready for the world, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know if, if what you did as a parent is good or bad or going to work out. Are you going to have, you know, the next, I don't know, you know, president or, or you're going to have the next Jeffrey Dahmer, right? It's like you just kind of do your best. And that's the same with a film. It's, you know, you craft it, you do the best you can, you pour your heart and soul into it, and then it's time to let go. The child has grown up, goes into the world, and now it's time to do your thing. And with movies, it's like, here it is. And then it's just got to do its thing. And people hopefully will resonate with it. Hopefully they'll they'll connect with it because it's it's scary, you know, putting your your, your work out there because you work so long on a film. And it's really a major portion, a few years of your life that, and people watch it within two hours, an hour and a half, an hour and 20 minutes, whatever it is. Shit, sucks, love it, hate it. It's just so quick. And then that's it. You move on. Um, so you hope most people like it. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, it, I think it's probably fair to say that it is one of those like polarizing films of last year. Do you know what I mean? People either like just loved it with like all of their heart. Do you know what I mean? They yeah. Really fought for it as well. Like a lot, yeah. there's a lot of passion for it and stuff. But, you know, horror is probably the most divisive genre it out is. there, you know? And <laughs> it's the best, worst movie of all time from End of Horror and Argue. But that's what makes it special. That's what makes horror so different there's only one other fan base that's similar um but i don't know if they're as opinionated but they're definitely as passionate which is like the comic book world right with uh you know batman and spider-man and all of that stuff um there's no conventions for you know uh drama films or comedy films romantic films and the fans don't care that much they watch the movie they move on they're not waiting online for hours on end to you know meet uh, you know i don't know jim carrey at signing on i don't know it's just it's just a different world. Why? Why do you think that is? Like, what? What is it about horror that's like just so, like, gripping to people? A lot of people connect with it. Um, first of all, I think it's the type of people that like horror films because there's not many people that uh, there's. I shouldn't say there's not many. It's a lot of people that there's. And the other ones, the types of people that love rom coms and things like that. I don't think they're as invested into it because maybe they don't see themselves in in it like what horror people do. Whereas like. Horror people, the films are are always following the outcasts, usually. And, you know, it's the ones that couldn't quite get there and, like, you could kind of resonate. Horror also took a lot of chances. Like, you know, there's a lot of uh, gay people depicted in horror. You know, there's a lot of um, women, obviously, we know this now, that fight to become the, the heroines. Um, then we got cool, iconic characters like Art the Clown and Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger that are just really market like marketable like superheroes are. So I think it's a combination of all of that. Um, but I think for the most part, as horror fans resonate because it reminds them of a time maybe when they were the outcasts and people didn't necessarily like them. And like now you kind of get into where we can communicate this way and share our love for horror and realize, oh my God, way more people love horror than I thought. I'm not the outcast. Um, you know what I mean? You love it just as much as we do. And it kind of has now become the genre by the people. It always kind of has been. And now it's kind of being talked about more, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like I feel I was having a conversation with someone before and they were like, I've got to break into like the horror industry and stuff like that. I was like, just you have to make stuff. If you if you're making stuff, you're in. There's no there's not right. it's not like fucking drama or like you say, like comedy or rom coms or anything like that, where you've got to like have your big made it moment or anything right. like that. You've just got to be making stuff. Just Right. And then and they're right, and the horror fans will will see anything. I watch so many horror films that are like ten dollar budgets, right? But you still see it because there's those creative gems. There's those because you can take risks in horror movies, too. Mm -hmm. Whereas in these other ones, I don't think you really can. There's a reason why actors, actresses, directors, producers all even start off in horror films like big ones. Mm -hmm. Like you talk about Jennifer Aniston and like what Le between the Leprechaun, mm -hmm. you know, they, they kind of start off there because it really gives opportunities to people in the film world to get started, to kind of get their voice and to to just create. And the community is unbelievable. Like. No other genre can you literally say, I hang out with Kane Hodder, uh, you know, the star of the Friday the 13th movies, mm -hmm. at a bar, having a drink, whatever, these conventions. Like, it just doesn't happen. No. That's great, isn't it? Just that level of, like... Accessibility? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, like us. Like, like you know, like having this conversation right now. Just great. And I feel like everybody in the horror industry that I've met so far 
super humble, just super. Uh, yeah, they're nice. they're right, and they're, they're great people. Mm. Like that's what it's like. You think like everybody always says like people who may may not understand horror as much. They're like terrified, the craziest, right? The stuff that happens, and they're like, you guys are so nice, and they're like, and Damien is like afraid of real blood. It's like. He's one of the nicest human beings in the world. Yeah. You can have a great time laughing with him. All of us. We have a one. We were out last night, and nobody knew who we were. We were at a, a random bar, went to a steakhouse, and people just were hanging out with us, like for like two, three hours, buying drinks, whatever. And it was just like, wow, you guys are super cool. What do you guys do for a living? Oh, we make horror movies. Like what? Mm. Like we thought you guys would have been crazy if that was the case. Yeah, no, that's the thing. It's like everybody is actually pretty well adjusted, and uh, yeah. because I think they if they have got things going on in their life, they know how to deal with them or they know how to channel them or something like that. And I used to kind of have a bit of an issue, not an issue, but I never really let on that I was into horror films and stuff like that because I feel like people would kind of have this reaction and I would have to justify it. But now I've kind of... Just... And that's what I was talking about yeah. now. But I was talking but about I don't that... care because if they don't okay. want to be in, that's fine. I don't. We, we, don't, we don't need them to be in. They can, they can think what they want. It's totally cool by me. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, there exactly. are people it's in here. It's their loss. There's a lot of people, but now we're able to. Like it used to be this taboo thing, like oh, I like horror movies, mm. but I don't. I don't really want to say it. Now it's kind of like you have this outlet where you realize there's so many people that do, and whoever does, we talk about it, and we yeah. embrace it, and we enjoy it. Um, and that's what I love about this community, and that's what I love about making the films because you, like you said at the beginning of the question, was the horror fans are the most opinionated because they care so much. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, it's so polar, so bipolar. It's like they love this movie, they hate it, and they'll go into detail, they'll go into theory, and it's really awesome to hear. Mm. And it, it keeps the conversation going. It just means we can all talk about horror more and more and more. So I'm, exactly. I'm glad not everybody all likes the same stuff. Do you know what I mean? Right, um, right. But, yeah, you should have seen people's faces when I said that I didn't like The Shining. Uh, uh, me, I don't like that. Jesus Christ, you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> like there's certain you don't have to love them all that's yeah. what's wonderful no, and no. you you could talk about it and there's certain movies that i like that people are like great they're like you're insane that movie's horrible i'm like i liked it yeah no no i've got i've got a few of those movies myself but but it you know it makes the world go round you know what i mean it's uh it, it's good to have that variety because otherwise it'd just all be fucking boring you know with, with all of that said it's like you know your, your passion for horror is just like clear and infectious like, what would you say to somebody who is thinking about, like, they want to make their first horror film? Like, what, like, one piece of advice would you give them? Honestly, it's just do it because no matter what, you have to learn on the set. You have to learn. So write the story you want to write. Learn those beats. Learn those moments of, okay, this is how you get something to be tense and to get a lot of tension. This is how you break the tension. This is how you get to a scare. Um, learn honestly. I I wish I was able to do what Damien has has done, which is learn practical effects. It is so important in horror. It's so cool, and if for some reason it's just you know it's way better than CGI, and and um, not many people know it and could do it as well as uh, that. And I think that's a huge thing. So just kind of jump in, feel around, get bloody, get your hands dirty, make something crazy, make something fun, tell the story you want to tell, but do it. Most people say they're going to do it, and they don't do it. That's the biggest thing. Find like-minded people. Hire people that aren't like-minded. Fine. Just get it done. You know, get help and, and, and make something happen, and then submit them into film festivals. I think that's a great start because film festivals will help you network and meet like-minded people that are interested and that can help, and you can work together because it's really hard to do it on your own. 
It's a lot easier, it's still hard, but a lot easier to do it with a team because you can just feed off each other, bounce ideas back and forth, encourage one another when things kind of go astray um, and celebrate as well when things go well. So it's just a matter of uh, getting it done and don't ever stop. I know it's a little cliche, but that is 100% the way to go about it. Want to make a horror movie? Want to make a movie? Want to do it? Do it. Cliche is a cliche is for a reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah, no, it makes total sense. Like, um, is, have you ever been given any like shitty advice? Like any advice that you've heard it and on Facebook that you go, that's terrible. I'm never, I'm never. Yeah. Have a plan B. Have a plan B. For me, every time somebody tells me to have a plan B, I get it. Or before really the success of everything was plan B is planning to fail. Because if you have a contingency plan, it's like, then I'm expecting to fail. And uh, that, I mean, listen, it's not horrible advice. It's just something that I don't ever think about. And so I'm very goal-oriented and very driven in, in, in my goals. Um, so for me, it's like, you know, I get it for some people. It's like, you know, have, have your layers and stuff. If your plan B is still within the business and stuff, and it's not something totally separate, maybe that's a different thing. But, uh, you know, maybe that. Um, I tend to take advice from everybody and just use whatever kind of resonates with me. Mm-hmm. I don't ever think advice is bad because maybe it's good for them and maybe it worked for them, um, but it might not necessarily work for me. It's the same when like I'd make films and I listen to everyone. I'd be stupid not to. And I take what makes sense to me. If it makes sense, I'm like, wow, okay. I didn't look at, okay. I, I, I see that, you know, if I don't, I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I, I okay. But it's not what I want to do. Um, but you listen to everyone. You're, you're silly if you kind of cut that off and don't because you never know where it's going to go. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Cool. And finally, my last question for you: Do you have like an on-set survival kit? Like, what say say you're about to you're about to leave, uh, leave the house uh, to go to location? Like, what are you making sure that you've got in your in your pocket like before you go? It could be like a, <laughs> a, a film-related thing, or just something that you need to get through the day. Or yeah, I, you know what's it, interesting is I I it, it's this again. This sounds like silly because now everything's on the phone, right? So back in the day, it would be like I have my favorite CD with music or I have my iPad or my iPod or something to mm-hmm. play the songs. On my phone, I have a bunch of music and stuff that is my kind of thing to where things get crazy. You just need to listen to something that kind of grounds you. Um, my also on set thing is I make sure I have my own car there. I hate being trapped <laughs> for like if I need like a quick escape to like drive to the store just for five minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't want to send a PA. I want to go. Because that's kind of you're just unwinding. Um, you know, I've been to sets where like I've went with people or we're in the production van and I'm totally trapped. And that's the worst. So for me, it's, you know, just making sure that you can kind of escape, even if it's only for two minutes. Um, mentally, it helps. I'd say that's a pretty good plan B. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> A big thank you once again to Michael for chatting us through Terrified 2, Abnormal Attractions, and uh, everything that Fuzz on the Lens have got going on. Uh, I, for one, am keeping my eye out for those uh, documentaries. And uh, yeah, I can't see, can't wait to see what they do next. Um, if you want to check out uh, Stream, the project that Michael and I spoke about briefly, you can check it out in the show notes below. Uh, their crowdfunding uh, page is, to be honest, a, a clinic on how you should sort out a crowdfunding page. So if you are looking to sort one out yourself, 
I would seriously give their page a look and because they do a lot of things right and it looks very, very cool. You can also find a link in the show notes below to Abnormal Attractions. Uh, you can rent that on Amazon Prime or you can order yourself a Blu-ray because who doesn't love a bit of physical media? Um, that's going to do it for this week. We will be back next Friday. I can't tell you who the guest is just yet, but rest assured, it will be a good one. Until then, stay weird, stay spooky, keep up the good work. <laughs>